tonight as we continue our journey through the great Sermon on the Mount. We pay a visit, as it were, to a theater as we begin chapter 6. We might say we're going to visit the, the theater of the Pharisees. Because tonight we're going to talk about, as we look at Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, and then drop down to bring in chapter, or verses 16 through 18, we might simply entitle what we're going to look at tonight in this part of the Great Sermon on the Mount as theatrical religion. Because this section of the sermon begins with the warning or the admonition from the Lord, take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. And it's interesting that that phrase, to be seen, is translated from the word from which we get our word theater. And we are going to be talking about a theatrical production, if you will, on the part of the Pharisees, which the Lord, in no uncertain terms, condemned and warned his disciples for all time against, that we should not fall into the trap of theatrical religion or doing the things that we do in order to be seen by men. Take heed, a warning there. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds or your alms, as the King James says, the New King James says, your charitable deeds. Many translations say your righteousness, and that is the word from which this word comes, the word for righteousness, or in other words, your righteous deeds. And so as we begin to look at the theatrical religion that Jesus so clearly condemns here, we look first of all at the actors in the play. Who are they? The Lord clearly identifies them as hypocrites, the Pharisees. And the word hypocrite is just that, a pretender, one who, in effect, wears a mask, one who puts on a performance, one who does not reveal his true identity. It's all outward. It's all show. It is all theater. And it's all done for theatrical reasons, according to the Lord here, to be Seen, as we said, the very word from which we get our word theater translates to be seen. And there's a very sobering statement that is added to this initial warning in verse 1 of chapter 6 here. As he says, do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them, otherwise you have no reward from your Father in heaven. He doesn't say you have a diminished reward. It doesn't say your reward will be diminished or lessened by this, it will be completely negated. There will be no reward for those who do their charitable deeds out of hearts that are not properly motivated and directed toward God. And so the actors here are the hypocrites and the audience, men. In other words, simply to be seen of men. And so he elaborates then in verse 2, as he says, therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do, the actors do, in the synagogues and in the streets that they may have glory from men. That's their whole purpose. 
And then he says, and we'll come back to this a little bit later on, assuredly I say to you, they have their reward. And so as we continue with the play and we see that act one is alms or righteousness as we continue through verse four. And Jesus then tells us how it is that we are to engage in our charitable deeds. How not to in verses one and two, how to engage in them in verses three and four where he write, or says, but when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. And so Jesus speaks very clearly to the motive behind what we do. And it is a sobering reminder, as we are reminded in other passages throughout the New Testament, that it is not only what we do that is important, but it is the motive for doing it that is vitally important. That's reminiscent of what Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, is it not? When it comes to worship, when he said in John 4.24, as it's recorded there, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. There's no question about the fact that the Pharisees, uh, in many ways, were, were doing the things that the law commanded, yes, granted, they had added a great deal to it and had added a great deal of their tradition and had perverted many things, but there were things that they were, they were doing that were in accordance with the law. In fact, as we alluded to this morning, in Matthew 23, Jesus at verse 1 spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples saying, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. In other words, they have positions of authority, and they are to instruct people to follow the law of Moses. And Jesus goes on in that context to say, therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. But then he says, but do not according to their works, for they say, and do not do, for they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers, but all their works, here it is again in Matthew 23, the same thing Jesus is addressing here in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, but all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. He goes on, they love the best places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogue, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called by men, Rabbi Rabbi, they love all of that glory. And their whole motivation for doing what they do is to receive that glory. And so, do not do your alms or your charitable deeds or your righteousness, and that's literally the idea here. Do not do your righteous deeds for the wrong reason. Is it the case that righteous deeds may do good for people if they are engaged in? Certainly they may. But what about the one who is the doer of the righteous deed? If the doer of the righteous deed is not properly motivated and is doing it for all the wrong reasons, then how much reward do you have despite the good that may be done to the one for whom the deed is done? You receive no reward. No reward. It speaks very soberly to the matter of attitude, doesn't it? And what our attitude should be. We talked about it in Bible class this morning in relation to our attitude toward giving. Brian brought up the punt. That attitude is so crucial to our giving. 
And it is not so much the amount that we give, though we are to give generously, but we are to give out of hearts filled to overflowing with gratitude and love for what God and Christ have done for us. And the attitude is so important. What God wants is, first of all, for us to give ourselves to the Lord and then have everything else follow. And so Jesus, in Act 1, if you will, of this discussion says, our alms or our righteousness are not to be done in a theatrical way. They are not to be done for show. Now, I remember that we studied in Matthew 5 in the early part of this sermon something about light, something about something that is seen by men. Remember in Matthew 5, 13 through 16, Jesus said, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. And then in verse 14, He said, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all that are in the house. Then he says, let your light. He didn't say, as we pointed out when we studied that passage, he didn't say, shine your light so that it will be seen by men and they can see how good you are. He said, let it shine. There is a difference between shine your light and let it shine. Obviously, if we are serving the Lord as we should out of hearts filled to overflowing with love and gratitude, and if we're doing so with genuine humility, people are going to see that. They are going to see that and hopefully be drawn to the Savior as a result of what they see in us as reflectors of the light of the world, Jesus Christ. But there's a vast difference in what Jesus is condemning here in Matthew 6 and what he is condoning and commanding actually in Matthew 5, verse 16. Let your light shine, that others may see your good works. And here's the contrast. The Pharisees wanted to be glorified themselves. Jesus said, let others see your works and glorify whom? You? No, let let them glorify your Father who is in heaven as they see the Father in you, as they see the Son in you. And so Jesus clearly addresses the importance of the proper attitude concerning our alms, our righteousness, our charitable deeds. And he does not say, if you do your charitable deeds, does he? He says, when you do a charitable deed, not if. And so the clear implication, the the understanding is that you are going to do charitable deeds. That's what is expected of the child of God. That's what the child of God does. He does engage in charitable deeds. And so it's not if you do one, but when you do, because we are expected to do that. And don't shine your light. Don't make a show of it. I like what the Hebrews writer said that relates to this teaching in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 10. And it reminds us that we do not have to be concerned about what others know about what we are doing or what we have done or what we have given, or what charitable deed or deeds we have been engaged in. What is important? Listen to Hebrews 6, verse 10. The writer there says, For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. Who will not forget it? Whether men ever see it or not, 
Whether other men ever know what you have done or what you do or not, God is not unjust to forget. He is just to remember, and he will not forget it. I've said that many times it would be, it would be good for us to forget anything good that we have done and let God remind us of it in the judgment, lest we remember too much and dwell too much on what we have done rather than what we need to be doing now and what we need to continue to do until time is no more. Let God remind us of it. He will not forget. And so I like Hebrews 6.10 as a passage to bring in at this point. And then we move to Acts 2 of the theatrical religion that the Pharisees were practicing. And Acts 2 involves asking, or prayer, in other words. Verses 5 through 8. And here Jesus says, And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. And here it is, assuredly I say to you, they have their reward. So don't pray like that, and then, how is it we should pray? As with the alms, or the righteous deeds, he tells us how not to do it, and then how to do it. As with prayer, he tells us how not to pray, and now in verse 6 beginning, he tells us how to pray. But when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. He tells us, don't be praying to be seen or heard by men. Now, he's not eliminating public prayer, obviously. Prayer is a part of our public worship. And the men are to lead in prayer. And so he's not eliminating public prayer. 1 Timothy 2, 8, let the men, but I desire that the men pray everywhere. That is public worship in that context. And so obviously he's not excluding that, but he's simply addressing the point that solitude, solitude has its value when it comes to our prayers and that we should not be concerned about others as we pray. And we should appreciate the fact that we have a communication line if we're a faithful child of God open to the very throne of God in heaven. And we can approach him at any time. And as we approach him, our thoughts should be centered upon our communication to him and not our communication to others. That does not mean that when a man is leading a public prayer, prayer, he should not prepare himself and take account of the things that need to be said in that prayer. But he doesn't pray the prayer to impress others. He prays at all times, all of us do or should, to communicate with God the Father in heaven. And so indeed, prayer is enjoined upon us, but there are certain things that are prohibited. And as he continues in verse 7, he says, And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Back when Elijah encountered the prophets of Baal, On that occasion, for half a day, the prophets of Baal cried out for a half a day, Baal, hear us. Baal, hear us. For two hours in Acts 19.34, at Ephesus, 
those who were the worshipers of the goddess Diana cried out for two hours, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Vain repetition's gone to seed, wouldn't you say? Indeed. And so he is not saying don't ever repeat yourself in a prayer. Don't ever repeat a petition in a prayer. But don't think you'll be heard for your many words. And don't make those words vain repetition. Jesus prayed three times, did he not, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Three times he prayed those same words. In fact, the text says, saying the same words. Was that vain repetition? Certainly not. And so I think we can differentiate quite easily between what is vain repetition and what is valid, uh, valid repetition in our prayers to God. And then in verse 8 he says, Therefore do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. He knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. Go back with me and look at these verses again. I really appreciate what our brother Billy Smith did many years ago back in 1982 in the 7th Annual Spiritual Sword Lectures an excellent lesson on this very text. And here's how he broke down these verses. I think it's a great outline, a great way to remember these things. Go back to verse 5, and there you see the sincerity of prayer. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. They love to pray standing in the synagogues that they may be seen by men. That's insincere, isn't it? That's insincere prayer. That's prayer to be seen. What should be characteristic of us is sincerity. Think about Luke 18 and the Pharisee, the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. And think about how the Pharisee prayed. Oh, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like this publican. I am thankful that I fast twice in the week, etc., etc. How good I am. But what did the publican say? Beat upon his breast, wouldn't lift his eyes to heaven. And said, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Didn't take him long to say that either, did it? What, nine words? Seven to nine? Seven or eight, nine words? Something like that. Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Sincerity in prayer. Then in verse 6, the solitude of prayer. But when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you open. There is the solitude of prayer. Remember on more than one occasion we find Jesus involved, engaged in prayer. Matthew fourteen twenty three. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on a mountain by himself to pray. And when evening had come, he was alone there. The solitude of prayer. And then verse 7 the simplicity of prayer. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. As we said, the publican cried out to God and prayed to him in very few words compared to those of the Pharisee. Which one of them left the temple that day justified? We don't have to speculate. The Lord tells us it was the publican, not the Pharisee. And so the simplicity of prayer is seen in verse 7. And then finally in verse 8, the security of prayer 
is seen. Think about that. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. Isn't that security in prayer? The knowledge that God knows what we need even, even before we ask Him. And there's a passage in the Ephesian letter that is very comforting along these same lines at Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20 where Paul writes now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. Think about that statement. Now to him who is able to do what? Exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. Superlative after superlative heaped upon superlative. That's the power that God has. Therefore, that's the security that we have as his people as we go to him in prayer through Jesus Christ. So I like the way Brother Smith, long ago, wrote down this passage. The sincerity of prayer, verse 5. The solitude of prayer, verse 6. The simplicity of prayer, verse 7. And the security of prayer, verse 8. And then we go to Act 3. And in Act 3, we drop down to verses 16 through 18 to see abstinence or the idea of fasting, something that was characteristic of the Jews of Jesus' time. It is not something that is specifically commanded anywhere in the New Testament. It is not an act of public worship as prayer, obviously, is an act of public worship, and we're to engage in it. Uh, Also, giving is an act of public worship. So the two things he has discussed already, the charitable deeds and prayer, are part of our public worship. Nowhere do we find that fasting was ever a part of public worship in the New Testament. And uh, indeed, it was something that the Jews engaged in, but it is not specifically commanded. That is not to say that it is not something that would uh, be beneficial and that has been beneficial. But it is something that is engaged in privately as a part of private devotion. It is something that is done uh, not just as a matter of routine, but it would be something associated with times of of, uh, grief, times of of sorrow, uh, times of, of drawing even closer to God and the abstinence of physical food being beneficial to that process, but it's on an individual uh, basis. But here, the Lord regulates the practice that was certainly engaged in on a regular basis during that time. And so in verse 16, he says, moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But, but you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. You think about the ostentatious nature of these Pharisees. Even in their fasting, they would disfigure their faces so that they would make absolutely clear the fact that they were abstaining from food. They wanted people to know just how righteous 
they were. And yet Jesus said they should have been hiding it because it's not other men who are important in that process. It's God. It's God who is important. And so as we look at the theatrical religion and the action of the play, the actors being the hypocrites, the Pharisees, the audience being men, other men, that is, in order to be seen by them, and the action being act one, alms or righteousness, act two, asking or prayer, and act three, abstinence, then we finally come to the applause, the curtain call, if you will, and the applause. Oh, and that's what the Pharisees were vitally concerned about, the applause. And here it is. Jesus summarized the applause that they received. They have their reward. Have you thought about the significance of that statement? They have their reward. What was he saying? He was not saying they have their reward and they will have their eternal reward. No, he's saying just the opposite. He's saying, that's it. That's all they have. And unless they change their hearts, that's all they ever will have. That's all they ever will have. But you know what the tragedy of today is? That we live in a world today, religiously, where there are so many who are doing so many things that are characteristic of what the Pharisees we're doing and they have all the reward that they will ever receive there have been those who have who have taken in mass amounts of money who have garnered the applause if you will literally applause because in the religious world that is so characteristic of religious activity today you hear it and tragically it's even crept into the church in places where it has absolutely no place at all. But there are those who have sacrificed the truth for the applause of men. There are those who, as the Pharisees did, have appreciated and enjoyed all of the glory that they have received. And I do not doubt that there are many who, unlike the Pharisees, are sincere in their erroneous religious practice. But whether the attitude is right or wrong, unless the action and the attitude are there, then what Jesus said of the Pharisees tragically applies to all those in that situation. And that is, they have their reward. All they'll ever have. And that's a tragedy beyond description, isn't it? When Jesus clearly tells us how it is that we can have more than the glory of men, whether we have that glory ever or not. Because remember Hebrews 6.10, God is not unjust to forget your works and the fact that you've ministered to the saints and that you continue to minister. And hopefully that's characteristic of everyone here tonight. It is not theatrical religion that is pleasing to God. It is true religion 
pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself, what? Unspotted from the world. James 1, 27. You come out of the world in obedience to the gospel initially. That's how you remove the spots of the world from your precious immortal soul. By belief in Christ that leads you to repent, confess Jesus as the Christ, and to be buried in baptism for the remission of sins. You rise from the watery grave of baptism unspotted from the world. And you keep yourself unspotted from the world, practicing pure, not theatrical, but pure religion as you follow the teachings of Jesus and of the inspired writers whom the Holy Spirit inspired and led into all truth. Tonight, if you haven't become unspotted from the world, by obeying the gospel, we plead with you to do that. And if you, having done so in the past, but now know that you are no longer unspotted, but that the world has once again affected you and has caused you to leave the Lord in a way that causes you to need to come home in a public way. Private sins should be confessed and repented of privately, and it can be and should be. But if there's one here tonight who needs to come home to his or her first love, knowing that you have practiced not necessarily theatrical religion, but simply departed from the pattern of the New Testament and not practiced pure religion for whatever reason, come home in repentance, confession of that sin, and be restored to your first love. We'll pray with you and for you to the God of heaven who loves you. As we stand to sing, please come.